Okay, so here we are. I'm very pleased to have Bhakti Abhay Ashram Maharaj as our guest for the Sarka Interviews um, series. And uh, I've known Bhakti Abhay Ashram Maharaj for maybe about 17 years now. He started coming around to Audaria just a year after I joined in 2005. And uh, we've done some crazy things in the jungles together also in Costa Rica and things like that. So this should be an interesting interview. Of course, Bhakti Abhashramarj has a wealth of experience and you know, wisdom in, in the realm of Bhakti from uh, the many 50 plus years of being a devotee. And uh, we're very happy to kind of, uh, how would you say it, uh, tap into that, that source or that, that wisdom. So let me get started with a little bio of, of Ashram Maharaj. So Swami B.A. Ashram has been practicing Bhakti Yoga since May 1969, when he met Srila Prabhupada's disciples in Hawaii. He accepted the renounced order of sannyas in 2012, during 40 years of household life, along with performing a variety of services for the Krishna consciousness movement, he taught English at colleges and universities in California, Hawaii, and Florida for about 25 years. He has taught bhakti yoga throughout the Hawaiian islands, across the United States, in Central America, and Poland. He is currently based in Honolulu, Hawaii. Okay, so uh, let's get started. I've uh, jotted down some questions here, and I asked people to send their own questions in if they had any. And I got some from a few devotees, which is nice to have that beforehand so that I don't have to, you know, do it live, so to speak. So it's nice to be a little prepared. But I was uh, interviewing Gokul Chandra about a month or one month and a half ago. And I started with the same question, which I think kind of kicks the whole interview in the right gear from the get-go and that is Ashram Arch, can you remember like the first religious or spiritual experience that you had and what was it like oh <clears throat> i saw that question and all of a sudden i find my find, find it. the first religious or spiritual experience that i can remember Um, was probably just going to church regularly as a little boy. Um, my, um, my family nominally was Methodist. Uh, uh, my great-great-grandfather was one of the founders of this town on the central coast of California, Lompoc. Um, so I'm like a I'm, I'm fifth generation Lompoc. And, and um, the town was founded as a temperance colony, uh, which tells you a little bit about the, probably the kind of Methodists my great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents were. Um, and because we were uh, a pioneer family, a prominent family in town, when we lived in Lompoc, even though my dad was an agnostic, probably, at the, probably from the age of 18, I think what did it for him and God was uh, when right after joining the Navy, just before World War II started, his first assignment in the Navy out of a basic training was uh, as a photographer um, documenting the recovery efforts at Pearl Harbor. So he was an 18-year-old kid from a dairy farm in California 
watching them haul the bodies of 18, 19, 20 year old farm boys out of the wrecks of their ships. And that was it for him and God. Um, so, but because of our family, we went to church. I went to Sunday school. But when we moved away from Lompoc, starting at the age of nine, I was actually the only person in my um, uh, immediate family who went to church regularly. Um, so I always had an affinity for understanding God, as far as I can remember. I, I do remember um, when we still lived in Lompoc, we would have um, our minister um, over for dinner fairly regularly. Uh, his name was Mr. McGee. And um, one evening after dinner, we were sitting in the living room. I guess the grown-ups were having their coffee, and I was sitting on the couch with uh, Mr. McGee. And um, he asked me if I had any questions. So I, I had two questions. Um, what is God like? Six or seven years old. Uh, what is God like, and what are we supposed to do? We're here. What are we, what are we supposed to do with that? Uh, he was a, a little shocked. Um, and didn't have any answers. <laughs> he didn't really have any answers that I remember. So I, I think I was kind of always sort of chasing after those, um, chasing after those answers. I don't remember like one, oh, I, I always need to counter that. Um, I have a counter story to that in case anyone thinks I might've been too spiritually precocious on another occasion. Um, perhaps a little before, sometime before that, I don't, I, I just don't remember the, because it's like almost 70 years ago. Um, we were sitting at the table with Mr. McGee, and we usually did say a prayer before um, uh, our, our uh, dinner, our evening meal, um, but we just called it the prayer. So, um, this evening, um, my father looked at me and he said, Billy, would you like to say grace? And, and I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. I, I, and and, and, and to honestly, to this day, I, I, I can't be sure of the extent to which it was innocence slash ignorance. Or, or on, on the other hand, just being a wiseacre. Um, with because every, everybody's heads were bowed, that should have been a clue. Um, so every with everyone's heads bowed very solemnly, I said very confidently, I said the word grace. And Mr. McGee laughed so hard he almost fell out of his chair. He had so, in in case anybody thinks I was, you know, too, I don't know, Saint Francis ish or something like that. Um, I, I was also a goofy little kid, and I don't have a clue where those questions came from. That's so nice. Um, like, um, th this is a really common theme with like all the interviews I heard before, and now that I started doing my this myself, it's the reoccurring themes like that the people who end up being serious about the spiritual life they have clearly these like like latent some scars because yeah. like. Like that kind of thing just doesn't come to the mind of a normal kid. Like, and the, the, it was really interesting to me that your pastor didn't have the answers, which also shows that like we come to this from this like experiential side, but there's a lot of religion that's only social. That it's just what you do in the world, right? 
So he hadn't even right. thought about it, I suppose, although he's a minister, which is kind of surprising to us, but I guess that's normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a really nice story. I love that gray story too. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 the rest of the truth, as they say. Right. And so was your um mother religious at all so your father was agnostic but like did did you I, I guess you just said that you were the only person in your family who actually went to church regularly my, I think um I think mom I think we might have gone to church like on Christmas Eve or something um sometimes or and and uh and maybe Easter but the thing is I don't know what I, I can't think of which church my mom and dad would have gone to because the church I was going to was a, um, as an element as a like fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grader was a, a Presbyterian church hmm. that the friends from my new school, you know, my new friends when I moved at the beginning of the fourth grade uh, away from Lompoc to the Los Angeles area, they um, these kids that I made friends with went to a Presbyterian church and it was within walking distance. So I could go alone. Um, so it's not like a church they would have gone to. Um, so I, I honestly, and then when we moved to Virginia at, for the first year, we lived right next door to a Methodist church. Actually the home we were renting was being rented from that church. So I could just go over to church and Sunday school, you know, on my own. It's just next door. Um, and then when we moved out of out of town, out of Arlington, my dad would have to drive me to church. He would either drop me off or he would sit with me. Do you remember from that early time, like when you started going to church alone, uh, like as early as you can remember, do you remember any like peak experiences in terms of spiritual experience? in church or was it more just like it felt like comfortable and you like doing it but it wasn't any like you know rolling on the ground in ecstasy or anything like that um well i think if there were a peak experience it would be one morning um when i was walking to church i don't remember the context i don't remember what made me think of it but there was something about you know i, I remember having heard something about asking jesus into your heart in some sort of a you know, gesture of surrender and i asked jesus into my heart walking to church to that presbyterian church one morning um one sunday morning um i had a valley experience too um and that was in the sixth grade in sunday school um they started telling us about the Catholic Church and the things that the Catholic Church believed and you know Martin Luther's disappointment in the in the church and all these things and it really uh, disturbed me because I had next door neighbors who were Catholic kids who were perfectly cool and, and I also remember hearing I think my second grade girlfriend my second grade crush was a girl named Susie Romano who being from a Catholic, uh, from a, uh, an Italian family was Catholic. And I remember my parents telling me when I was seven, you know, you'd never be able to marry Susie Romano. Uh, and they ex explained to me that she went to a different church. And I thought, okay, that's weird, but whatever, I'm seven years old. 
Um, and so, I mean, I, I was so disturbed by the anti-Catholic rhetoric that I was getting in sixth grade Sunday school that I stopped going to Sunday school. I didn't stop going to church and I didn't stop participating in the children's choir. Um, but I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't do Sunday school anymore. Um, so I had a peak, maybe a sort of a peak experience and kind of a valley experience. And when I look at that, I realize that sometimes devotees ask me about the, um, how easily I, I uh, deal with devotees from whatever mission I happen to encounter that, you know, uh, and I've had this ecumenical spirit since before I was a teenager. And, and I, when I was a teenager, I ended up becoming an, um, an Episcopalian because I discovered an Episcopal church, uh, a low church, so it wasn't too exotic for me. Um, a little more like my Methodist and Presbyterian experiences. Um, and the minister, um, Herb Wilkie was, uh, this, and this is in the very early 60s, this is maybe 62 or, yeah, probably 62, 61 or two, where um, he, had, he had a very ecumenical spirit. And he would invite anyone who, um, I think the way he put it was believed in or accepted Christ's sacrifice to come up and take communion, whether they were confirmed in, in that church, St. James's, or any Episcopal church, or any church at all. Please come in. I found that really appealing. So um, I, I ended up being confirmed um, in the Episcopal church as a teenager. Yeah, that's interesting, because I immediately, when um, you were talking about uh your early experiences that that's what came to me too like you have this aura of being like non-sectarian it's very much like what i think of one of the first things i think about when i think about you and so i was thinking my understanding is that the methodist church is a little more open-minded than a lot of the other protestant protestant churches is that accurate or no um from what i've seen um recently um yeah, it probably is in a lot of ways. Um, I think there's probably a couple of different Methodist denominations. And um, I, you know, I mean, I remember there being, I think I remember hearing when I first became a devotee that there were 257 Protestant denominations at the time. There's probably 2,570 now. Um, but yeah. Um, they do seem to be um, open. There seems to be there seems to be a lot of room for, I guess, what people would call liberal or progressive thought and and uh, somewhat ecumenical spirit uh, in what I've seen um, of the Methodist Church. It's not my great grandfather's Methodist Church, that's for sure. <laughs> I see. So I guess we could fast forward a little bit. So you went to the Navy, I guess, in your late teens, and then. Uh, you were, I think, in the Navy when you met the devotees for the first time. As far as I remember, the story was that you met the devotees in a Jimmy at a Jimi Hendrix show, wasn't it? I'd love to hear that whole thing. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I was in the Navy. I was, uh, um, I was, I, I worked as an intelligence analyst. I was based at the Pacific Fleet Intelligence Center, and um, I was also in. Uh, so just I guess for, a part time, part time. Oh, go ahead. Just for a historical reference, that was during the Vietnam War, wasn't it? Exactly. 
that was my daily reality. My daily reality was um, working with, uh, part, part of it was working, uh, analyzing aerial reconnaissance photography of what was going on in Southeast Asia. And, um, and I was also, I guess you could say, I, I was engaged in activities that weren't particularly compatible with my very restricted top secret clearance and, and top secret work. The work, actually, the work I did day to day was mostly secret, not top secret, but there was some top secret stuff. But I had this really restricted clearance. Um, but I was also engaged in uh, part time, I guess, in uh, what was what became known then as the counterculture. I mean, I was here in Hawaii. It was the late '60s, and you know, that's what there was. That's that's what was going on. That was what was interesting. And um, and I was in the process of getting out of the Navy when one of my friends reminded me that there was a Jimi Hendrix concert that night. This was Friday, uh, Friday in May of 1969. And uh, so I went to this concert, and the the Jimi Hendrix experience only played a couple of songs, and Jimi uh, mumbled something into the um, microphone about. Uh, the sound system not being able to support his guitar. So he asked for 15 minutes and he said, we'll come back in 15 minutes. We'll fiddle with it and we'll come back in 15 minutes. Well, he didn't come back. And the whole time while we were waiting, just this was in an outdoor venue um, in Kapiolani Park in Honolulu called the Waikiki Shell. And the whole time during the time we were waiting, it was just a bunch of freaks sitting around waiting for Jimi Hendrix. People were playing Frisbee and doing all kinds of stuff. And um, just outside the, the exit to the Waikiki shell, I heard this sound. Sometimes it went faster, sometimes it went more slowly, but it never stopped. And I couldn't figure out what the heck it was until they came a while later and, and announced that uh, Hendrick wasn't going to perform that night, that we were to come back on Sunday night and he would play then. So as we exited, there was a party of four or five devotees just outside the exit to the Waikiki shell, um, having uh, some kirtan. And we all just gathered around the kirtan party. I mean, we came for an experience, came for the Jimi Hendrix experience. We came for an experience and Govinda Dasi, Turiyadas, Sudama, and Jayashri gave us an experience. And uh, eventually the crowd grew large enough that we were blocking the exit. So the police made the Kirtan party move down into the park. So this is thousands of young people chanting Hare Krishna under a full moon in the spring in Kapiolani Park in Honolulu. It was a pretty magical experience and it left a strong a uh, really strong impression on me. And um, out of that crowd, there were two people who within a few months moved into the Honolulu temple. Uh, my god sister, Krusha, uh, who had just, maybe was just about to graduate from high school at the time, because I think this was probably early May uh, of 69. Um, she was also, um, she was also there. And uh, that was so that was May and in February or March, I 
think we, of 1970, we both moved into the temple on the same day. Um, so that was a pretty powerful experience for a couple of us. And I've seen, um, I've seen people's accounts online uh, of that first night of that Hendrix concert, and they, they commented on the kirtan, most of them. Interesting. So did you, like when you were affected by the kirtan, did you have this, what did it feel like? Because a lot of devotees, when they finally like connect with devotees in this lifetime, they have this sense of like familiarity and like they, they kind of know that they are their people. I didn't have that personally, but a lot of people do. But what was your kind of internal experience when that happened? Um, there were a few levels. One was, I was, yeah, one of the questions I saw was, you know, what was it that attracted me? It was the kirtan that, that immediately attracted me. And, um, and it seemed strangely familiar to me. Um, I felt I know that. And the thing is, I, I had heard the Maha Mantra before um, when our local underground FM radio station would play the soundtrack to hair. And um, I think the song is called Love in Hare Krishna or something like that. And um, you know, I liked a lot of the songs um, from Hare um, because they were clever. They were music. A lot of them were musically interesting, um, um, and a little. Some of the lyrics a little, little naughty and and you know defiant as 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 we tended to be back then. And um, so I liked it. But the one song that stuck with me most was that Hare Krishna. But it didn't seem familiar. It it didn't feel like it seemed familiar because of that. And and when I reflected later on that, I remember being a boy in the L.A. area in the late fifties, and seeing on on uh, a local station a local cult leader being interviewed on some interview show. This must have been fifty eight, maybe. A guy, and I can't remember the name of his cult, but it was like kind of in the uh, in, in the hills right behind the San Fernando Valley where we lived and his name his the, what he called himself was Krishna Benta and I when I heard his name I sat down and listened to the whole interview and then later a couple of his ex-followers bombed their compound drove a truckload of dynamite up and bombed their compound so it, he was all over the news in, in the LA area for a while again. And they replayed that interview and I watched the whole interview and I was just blown. There was something about this guy's name being Krishna Venta. I didn't know what the Venta was about, but somehow or other Krishna just, it, it, it didn't seem weird. It's, you know, I just wanted whatever, whatever Krishna said, I wanted to hear it, you know? Yeah, I mean, it was weird. the guy yeah. was so weird. Yeah, I'm sure. But it, it's, of course, not surprising at all that you'd be attracted to the name, considering that we've spent like many lifetimes chanting over and over again, you know, like, so that that makes perfect sense that it would catch There's I'm interviewing Mayapur next time in a month or two, and he's got a really, really cool story. So stay tuned for that. I'm not going to reveal it. Oh, oh right. Okay. Oh, he's, he's got one of the coolest stories about that kind of thing that I've ever heard. But anyway, a little uh, carrot there for the listeners. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so you met the devotees and you joined soon after once you met them for the first time. 
And well, yeah, go ahead. I it was a few. It was it was a few months. Um, in the meantime, I did get out of the Navy. This I met the devotees in May. Uh, I did get out of the Navy in August, and came back to Honolulu in uh, maybe mid or late October of 1969. And before I got out and then after I came back, I would in the evenings go down to Waikiki and chant with the devotees, but on the other side of the street, because that was the uh, another layer to my experience. Um, when I first met the, when, you know, that, when I met the devotees at that Hendrix concert was, I was so drawn to the kirtan that I was worried about getting too close. And so I had determined that I was not going to get close enough to one of the devotees to talk to them. Um, so I would chant on the other side of the street. That's really funny. Uh, Ratna Chintamani has a similar thing. Like when she saw the devotees for the first time, she saw them also on the other side of the street and she knew immediately like, my life's going to end if I go. And like those are my <laughs> people, but my life's going to end if I like hang out with them. So I cannot go. So she, there, there was a very, like a pretty long uh, stretch of time before she then finally decided like, okay, I'm going to end my life basically. So it's, it's interesting. A lot of devotees also have that experience. It's funny how these things repeat with so many devotees, same kind of, same kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So then I'd like to, for me, a lot of times the most special stories are always like when you finally meet your guru. And so I'd love to hear about how you met Srila Prabhupada, where that was, and all the essential details about that. Well, while I was chanting on the other side of the street of the devotees, uh, from the devotees, uh, my friends all knew that I was really interested, but they also knew that um, I was never going to get close enough to them to fi really find out what was going on. So my friends would bring home Back to Godhead magazines for me, and I would read the articles, and I found myself being put off a little bit by the uh, articles by Srila Prabhupada being introduced as his, his divine grace. Uh, so this was 1969, so that we were using these titles by then, his divine grace and, and Prabhupada. And so I thought, what is this, some kind of pope? But I was reading the articles, and to the extent I was able to understand them. I was, I found myself really intrigued. And um, so when I, well, the way I, the, the way the, the, the uh, guardrail that I had erected uh, came down was that one, one Saturday night, probably in December of 69, I turned around to go back to my um, house and there was a devotee standing right at my elbow waiting for me. <laughs> and he invited me to come to the feast the next day. And I said I would come. So when, when I woke up the next morning, um, I remembered that I had promised this Krishna monk that I would go to their feast. And I didn't have any experience with monks. And I remember thinking, well, if you tell a monk you're going to do something, I, maybe you ought to do it. <clears throat> so I thought, okay. So... If I'm actually going to do this, I'm actually going to sit down with these people and chant Hare Krishna with them on purpose. I might as well just go clean 
I don't even think I smoked a cigarette that that uh, that day before I went to the feast, much less um, any cannabis or anything. Just go clean with your heart open. And I often caution people, kids, don't try this at home because it's a little dangerous. With my heart open um, to the Hare Krishna mantra and just see what it does. And it did what it did. That and Turida showed me Bhagavad Gita as it is, which kind of, uh, well, just the whole experience of that afternoon. When I went back to my house, I, I, re, uh, I realized that my life was going to be different from then on. I wasn't sure how. I didn't have a clear picture of what my new worldview was, <clears throat> but I knew that I saw everything differently all of a sudden. And, um, you know, it took me a few weeks, a couple of months of, you know, going out and chanting with the devotees, uh, the nights they went, I think we, they went out Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays and had Bhagavad Gita classes, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Saturdays. So that's what I did in the evenings after that. And, um, and then during the day I found myself, especially if there weren't any waves, I would find myself going up to the temple and helping out around the temple doing gardening or things like that. And, um, and at a certain point, I realized I was spending more time with the Hare Krishna devotees than I was with my friends or in the ocean surfing. Um, so I started actually contemplating moving in to see, you know, try and see, you know, see what total immersion was like. And uh, so when I did that, it was a little before, just a little before Gaur Purnima in 1970, I moved into the temple and I had been reading Srimad Bhagavatam uh, before moving into the temple. And when I read in the Srila Prabhupada's purport to the Bhagavatam's second verse, Srila Prabhupada writes that uh, he's writing about how devotees don't compete for the resources of nature. Um, and he said, so not only um, do they not compete with others, um, they strive to, uh, the devotees, the transcendental devotees of the Lord strive to create a competition-less society with God at the center. I read that sentence and it just completely turned my mind inside out. Because I, I realized at that moment that I had found the revolution we were all looking for. I mean, this is the most revolutionary idea that I had ever encountered. And um, so, I moved into the temple. It was a little rough because I'm a really shy and introverted person. And living in the ashram, we just didn't have any space. So it was a little hard for me sometimes. And um, in August of 1970, Srila Prabhupada came through um, and he came through and stayed overnight, gave one, one lecture um, at the temple. And I had already in my heart committed to Srila Prabhupada as his disciple. I had decided that I was going to join this revolution and, um, you know, and help Srila Prabhupada uh, bring it about. And so we had a kirtan party, probably of 50 people to greet Srila Prabhupada at the airport when he got in uh, that morning from Los Angeles. And, um, when I saw Srila Prabhupada, my heart pretty much, I mean, it, it, I had one of those, you know, your heart leaps out of your chest 
kind of experiences. And I had, I, when I actually saw him, when I was actually in the same space as he, I realized that I knew him. I realized that this is who I had. I wasn't like on a big search for a guru. People kept trying to point me toward gurus and I just, none of them, I, I didn't find any of them interesting. Um, um, but when I started reading Bhagavad Gita as it is, and and then Shrima, after that, Srimad Bhagavatam, and I kept chanting Hare Krishna, um, I, I realized that I, I had, you know, I at least needed to hear from Srila Prabhupada. And then when I'm uh, a little while after I moved into the temple, I realized that this was going to be my life. And so we made up, we had a little, we created a little space in the lobby of the airport to have a little reception for Srila Prabhupada where all the devotees would offer him uh, a flower lay, a, a flower garlands. And whenever um, I went forward to offer my garland to Srila Prabhupada, I was a little hesitant, kind of shy, and um, someone else would step up. So I ended up being the last person to offer their garland to Srila Prabhupada out here in this big public space in the Honolulu International Airport. And when I got down on the floor to offer my obeisances, I was sobbing so hard I couldn't say the prayers. Um, so I, I think I kind of had a peak experience there. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that, because one of my questions was, without knowing this, was like, what has been the most uh, profound, intense spiritual experience in your 50 years of being a devotee? Would this be it? Or was there another thing? if you don't mind sharing, that was even more intense. Well, I would say at least as intense was um, when I had my cage completely rattled um, one night um, in the early 2000s, um, where I had an encounter with Srila Prabhupada um, one of the, you know, you could call it a dream because I was in bed and it was the middle of, of the evening, middle of the night. But it wasn't dream-like in, in that the, both the sensory and emotional experiences were very lucid, really clear. And uh, this isn't generally, ordinarily, this is the kind of thing that isn't decent to discuss, but um, I have discussed it publicly on a couple of occasions because people have asked. And it's a way, um, I think, of glorifying Srila Prabhupada by uh, pointing out that he um, that he continues to give his mercy even to uh, laggards like me, even you know, even to you know devotees who are you know like super attached. I mean, I'm kind of like a dyed-in-the-wool family guy, and. Um, I found myself in a, a small, softly lit room alone with Srila Prabhupada. And it was, you know, after you know, however many years, maybe 30 years or something. Um, and um, if there was, if there is, if there was something in that dream, in that dream encounter that was anomalous, it was the fact that I'm sitting there grinning, just beaming, just super stoked because wow, I'm with, you know, here I am with Srila Prabhupada after all these years. Whereas ordinarily I would have been like I was in the airport. I would have fallen apart in a puddle on the floor. Um, so if there's anything that was out of place in that dream at all, that would be it. 
And I'm sitting there just kind of like grinning, thinking, oh my, and, and Srila Prabhupada looked great. He was glowing, vibrant, um, and intense. And so um, after I offered my obeisances and I sat there for a moment just beaming, he just kind of looked right at me and he said, so what are you doing these days? And, and the tone was kind of a blend of just checking in and um, checking me out, you know, uh, you know, looking for an opportunity for a course correction. So I explained to him that, um, you know, my wife and I lived um, uh, on the big island of Hawaii, that I taught at the local college, and that we did a lot of um, service together with, with the local devotees, and that we had a really um, strong uh, program of daily sadhana in our home, beginning with worshiping uh, my Takrajis uh, every day. And then we, our, our whole Sunday morning was just deity worship um, because we, we had our own deities besides my Sheila's and then devotees would drop their deities off if they were leaving the island for us to take care of. <laughs> we had like deity sitting service, I guess, at our, in our little temple room. Deity daycare, huh? Deity daycare. So um, his response, and so I explained to him, you know, that you know, we we had, you know, we were doing a lot of service together, and we were very supportive of each, of each other's spiritual progress. And his his response was, "Well, that's nice, but um, I wanted you to teach this Krishna consciousness cult." And I started to get a little uneasy feeling about where the conversation was headed, and. Um, so I would explain to him, you know, about, you know, well, we, you know, my wife and I had been together for so long. We, there was, we, we shared so much uh, um, uh, affection and responsibility. Uh, we felt so much affection and responsibility for each other and that we really, uh, really strongly supported each other in, in making spiritual progress. And he just kept pushing a little harder at each turn. Um, and at one point he said, oh, wife shouldn't be uh, an impediment. And I said, well, I don't think my wife is an impediment. And I went into my humana humana thing. And um, finally, he just, he just looked at me and he said, sometimes sannyas can help. And it was like, oh, Lord. <laughs> no, what? He said the S word. Um, and so I went back into my thing again about the mutual affection and, and, and uh, responsibility. Uh, and then he, he just, then he locked eyes with me and he just kind of cocked his head and he said, I also had to do. And that, that I just thought, oh my God, and mate, <laughs> you know, check and mate. And so, and it, at one point he assured me, uh, he said, she is a good girl. I know her well. Um, Krishna will take care of her. He is quite competent. I have uh, very strong confidence that he will be able to do so. And um, then he asked me, do you have someone who can help you? And I said, I don't know, with sannyas? And he just waggled his head, yes. And I said, and I started thinking and, and Whenever I would ask, you know, when I was living in San Diego, if sadhu, you know, some sadhu or sannyasi would visit, I would kind of like feel around like what they thought 
you know, I should think about in my future. And everyone was really happy that I had a really strong family life. Everybody thought of us as ideal householders. And, um, and our kids did a lot of service, you know, growing up, um, you know, into their 20s um, at the temple along with us. And um, so it, I kind of got like Mr. Rogers responses from them. You know, we like you just the way you are. We think it's really cool that you're really strong. You have a really strong household life and that you're a professional. You teach at the university. We like that. You know, everybody likes you just, you know, just, and so I'd, I kind of accepted that. So this dream really shook me up. So he, and I couldn't think of anyone. And, and then I just, and I thought, well, I had been doing editing for Tripurari Maharaj. So I said, I don't know, maybe Tripurari Maharaj. And he just leaned back on his bolster and he said, oh, he is a very good man. He has much to offer. And then he said, so speak with your wife and your children and um, um, arrange how to make this happen. And that was it. All of a sudden, I'm sitting in my bed, shaking with tears streaming down my face. I, I got up, went into my office, wrote the whole thing down in my journal so that I, and then didn't tell anybody. A couple of weeks later, maybe three weeks later, I got this email from Tripurari Maharaj saying, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, your life as a teacher, your Brahminical nature, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And I think you should, you should start thinking about how you're going to prepare for taking sannyas someday. And that just completely freaked me out. And I didn't respond, I couldn't respond. I just like, oh, what the heck? Because um, as I'm writing in my journal that night, I'm reflecting on Srila Prabhupada's talk on the occasion of, of Bhakti Pragyan Keshava Maharaj's passing, where he shared with the, the devotees the dreams that he had with Bhakti Siddhanta. And, he, and his response was, I was a little horrified. And I remember hearing that in 1970, hearing that talk in 1970 uh, on tape, and you could hear in his voice, there was no hyperbole there. There was no joking there at all. He was a little horrified. And actually Nanda Kumar, who had spent considerable time as Prabhupada's personal attendant um, in, the, in the early 70s, um, told me that he told, uh, Prabhupada told Nanda Kumar once, after he took sannyas and realized, just after he took sannyas and realized what he had done, he said, I was horrified. <laughs> so as I'm writing this in my journal, I'm reflecting on that and I'm thinking, I get it. <laughs> so um, eventually I wrote him, you know, he, oh no, he wrote me about 10 days later and said, I, pardon me if I was a little forward, um, but I, I just, you know, it just seemed to me like it was something worth bringing up. And I said, well, um, you're probably, no, I didn't, I haven't responded because I think you're probably right. And I'll tell you why sometime when I'm, when I'm ready. So that's how, that, that was another um, really profound experience with Srila Prabhupada. That's incredible. I never heard that part that, that Guru Maharaj contacted you just like less than two weeks or what a two weeks after this happened but it's i mean i've seen these kind of things being around guru march and being around other sadhus and stuff like this stuff is real like there are these real connections that it's a real thing right and it's just like 
obviously yeah. something like that cannot be a coincidence that grew much out of the blue to suggest that you take sannyas after Prabhupada appeared to you. Mentioned him in the dream. <laughs> Mentioned him in the dream, you know. Right. Said, oh, yeah, there's so much to offer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's so beautiful. I love these stories. I love to hear these stories. Um, I didn't actually know that you were doing editing for Guru March before this all happened. Like, what were you working on back then? Um, in 99, um, he sent me uh, the manuscript for Bhagavad Gita. He actually mailed me, I guess it was in 99. Because I think it was in 99 that I met him again after like 20 odd years of not having seen him. And Abhicharu um, and Chittahari came down to San Diego, I guess, to see um, some devotees cow project. Um, and I drove out, I drove out and spent the afternoon um, speaking with him and then invited, you know, and then um, he mentioned that he was going to come to the temple the next day, which was really awkward because that was the day I give Bhagavatam class. And it just feel, felt really awkward um, me giving uh, class with him sitting there right in front of me. Um, but um, where was I? I was just asking what you were working on. So it was the Gita. That's how you. Oh yeah, it was the Gita first, and um, I, um, I also helped with the Shikshastakam editing. I don't remember if that was before or I think that might have been after the dream. I can't remember. Yeah, Shikshastakam came out in two thousand and five, so it was about five years after the. Oh Gita. yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it was probably right around then, and I thought of. I guess I thought of him because I had what I considered to be a service relationship with him. Um, and, um, and I thought, well, he would be the one person who might not give me a Mr. Rogers answer you know, if I were to ask him what my future is supposed to look like. Sure enough, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> he volunteered it as he's wont to do. <laughs> Um, I always like to hear stories from, uh, you know, Prabhupada samples of how they met Guru March for the first time. And so I know you served in the in New Dvaraka in, in Los Angeles, but could you tell us how you met Guru March for the first time? And after that, what was your, what kind of encounters with you did you have with him? Stuff like that. Uh, sure. Um, in probably January of 73, um, I had come to the conclusion, along with my temple president in GBC, Gorsundar, um, who just passed away a few weeks ago, um, that um, Brahmachari life wasn't sustainable for me and that I needed to get married. And he had um, kind of surveyed, uh, you know, kind of like checked out the, the women devotees in, in Hawaii, a couple of whom lived in Honolulu, most of whom lived at a a ladies temple out in the country on the island of Kauai. And um, he didn't think any of them would be suitable for me. So he suggested I, that I go to Los Angeles or San Diego and see if I could meet someone and then come back. And then he changed his mind. He said, well, actually Prabhupada has made me GBC for South America along with Hawaii. And um, I was just wondering if you ever thought about uh, preaching in Peru. 
if you ever thought about going to Peru, and I said, well, when I was in high school, I was so fascinated by stuff I heard about the Inca civilization that I thought after I graduated from college, it would be cool to be part of Peace Corps or Alliance for Progress and then and work in Peru and kind of like do what I could to explore the, the mysticism of the Inca or something. And um, so um, we decided that I would go to LA see if I could find a wife and then go and then go to South America. So the very first brahmachari I met when I got to, to New Dwarka was um, really sweet, but super eccentric um, devotee. Um, and um, he asked me, do you like some kirtan? And I said, well, I've been part of this movement for over, th you know, about three years and a little over three years now, I guess, I guess you'd have to say yes, because uh, that's what we did back then. You know, oh, at least in Honolulu, we went out on the streets six to ten hours a day, chanting and distributing magazines and books, and uh, that's what we, uh, what I thought of as Sankirtan, what Prabhupada sometimes called street Sankirtan. So I said, "Yeah, I guess I do." And he says, "You like Sankirtan? You should find Tripurari." <laughs> He was, he, this, uh, this is very early 73, and he, he was always quite famous as, you know, the uh, guy to talk to about Sankirtan, which there meant book distribution by that time, because he had, I don't know, he had been instrument, he and a couple of other devotees had been instrumental in really uh, moving lots of Srila Prabhupada's books uh, on the streets and the malls and the airport and all these different places. and. Um, as it turned out, I had a locker um, up in the Brahmachari Ashram right next to Tripurari's. And for a long time, because I wasn't a book distributor and I was really only there to kind of get myself ready to go to South America, I wasn't because he was so focused on his sadhana, his study, and his service. And, and he spent so much of his energy back at the temple dealing with the devotees who were book distributors I, I had no clue whether he knew who i was even until one day one of the leaders approached me and started ripping me for not doing enough temple stuff and making excuses about getting ready to go to south america to do other things and triparari who i i mean i was moving into family life um, and he was just moving out of family life because you know he had been married for a while, had a had a child, um, but his life was really being changed by his um, circumstances, which largely included his dedication to his service. But even though I had no clue who he was, he turned around, walked up, and, and he knew Ramashore would listen to him because he was the. It wasn't, hadn't been yet declared by Srila Prabhupada as the incarnation of book distribution, but everybody um, looked up to him. And he looked over, he, he went to Rameshwar, this leader, and he said, Prabhu, here's what you don't, uh, here's what you're not considering. He's going to, to South America to prepare things so some of us can come down there and distribute Srila Prabhupada's books. And I saw right then that he had a much broader vision of the Krishna consciousness movement than I had given him credit to in, in the few weeks that I had known him. And uh, 
And, and I recalled that later when he, about, it must have been, you know, maybe almost 26 years later when he came to San Diego on that visit. So that was my, you know, kind of like when I, you know, my, when I first uh, actually kind of like had an encounter with him. Interesting. Yeah, that sounds like Guru March. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see my questions here. Oh, yeah. So I guess uh, we could jump. I, I want to kind of fast forward again to the time when you started. So you basically you decided to take sannyas and... Um, then uh, you started basically transitioning out of your family life. And I remember you came to um, Audaria for the first time. It must have been 2000, 2006, but you just came for like maybe a day visit or something at first. Wasn't that the case? And then after that, maybe a year after that, you started coming more and more. You actually started to like do the transition. So I would love to hear more like what that was like. And uh, yeah, just if you could kind of tell, tell us about that transition. Sure. Um, my former wife and I and our daughters, um, my wife and I had come um, to California. It must have been Christmas time. So that it might have been like Christmas 2005 um, or around, you know, because we went back, I think, on New Year's Day from that trip. I can't know. Anyway, I think so. So we would come to the we would come to the mainland at Christmas time um, to spend time with um, our daughters and um, my stepfather. My mom had already passed away, but we would still um, visit my stepfather at Christmas time when we could, because it's something we had done the whole time we lived in California, starting in the I guess mid eighties or something. And um, and we, as part of that visit, we drove up to Palo Alto to visit um, my sister um, who was dying of ALS, um, Lou Gehrig's disease, um, and, and her husband. And um, they loaned me their car uh, to drive up to Audaria. And um, because they had other stuff they wanted to do that my wife and kids weren't interested in like, spending those hours in a car um, just to go up and see some cows while I, you know, met some swami in the, in the forest. Um, so they went and did tourist stuff around, around San Francisco. And, and I drove up to Audaria and had lunch with uh, Guru Maharaj and the devotees. And, uh, and found out how affectionate some of those cows were. I remember my whole forearm became um got groomed by what well, i can't remember remember just who who it was but i realized wow their tongues are not only really rough but really long because she just kind of like wrapped her her tongue i gave her a couple of cow cookies and she just wrapped her tongue around my arm and just like covered the whole arm and and cow nectar um so yeah that was my that was my first um First visit to Aldaria. And then uh, you came, when you started kind of like to move in, that was, I, that must have been 2007, because I remember Mayapur was here and we were building the temple, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was just the three, it was just the three of us. Maharaj, Vrindaranya, Chittahari were in, uh, were at, at, at Madhuvan. 
Yeah, that was the first year of Madhuvan, yep. Yeah, so it must have been at the, must have been like, this. it was December, it must have been 2006, yeah. 2006, 2007, I, yeah, something like that, yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, mean, so that... I was I was the I was the Pujarian cook so that you and, and, and Mayapur could could build the temple. Yeah, yeah. But that must have been really intense because you said you were like a die in the wool uh, family man. And so then you have to start doing this transition. I mean, oh yeah, that must have been really rough. Oh, it was even yeah, it was even better than that. It was the dead of winter. I had never been at that high in a latitude during the winter. Um, I think the the northernmost place I had lived during the winter was Washington, D.C. area when I was a teenager. Um, and that's kind of the South. You know, that's kind of like the beginning of the South, I northern Virginia. Um, so it was long, very dark days. There was no sunshine. It was cold and, and gray and wet sometimes. And as we were driving from Santa Rosa, you and I were driving from Santa Rosa up to Audaria after you picked me up that day. I took the bus from San Francisco airport to Santa Rosa. And then we stopped at REI, I think, to get me a sleeping bag. And as we were driving up, you mentioned that Guru Maharaj wants us to, make, uh, to keep the heaters turned off at night when we're sleeping. <laughs> so I had these long, you know, these long, dark nights and, and short, you know, short grade cold days. And um, and I'd wake up some mornings and I'd look at the thermometer on my alarm clock and, and, and it was like 34 degrees in the yurt. And then I'd walk up to the, um, I'd walk up to the bathhouse from, what was that, yurt number five, at least it wasn't number six. Um, and, uh, which was a good workout, kept me young. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that 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 was a really interesting visit, and I had I think I'd committed myself to six weeks, and and I did it. Meanwhile, Maharaj would call from from Costa Rica, and you know, and and uh, you know, and then you'd pass the phone to me, and he'd rub it in. <laughs> yeah, it's eighty five degrees here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, I remember when I joined Audaria a couple of years earlier, and like I'm from Finland, right? And still, like those nights in the year, I mean, it got below freezing a lot of times, and I would go to bed with my toes like so frozen that they were like numb, I couldn't feel them at all, and I wake up and it was the same thing. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's uh, and then of course taking a bath in the bathhouse when it's not heated up and it's like stone floor. <laughs> stuff it's, it's another you know form of fun austerities so i can imagine yeah. if you come from this like comfortable householder situation in southern california hawaii and then you go straight to that it's like kind of like a trial by fire but so okay so you had that experience and i'm sure it was challenging but what was it like then when you finally actually moved out of your home and like what was that like um uh, when I when I uh, left, or what what was supposed to be the last time, what we intended to be the last time, <clears throat> um, I went down to Madhuvan, flew from Florida down to Madhuvan, and um, and I 
I remember having heard a story that Maharaj sent me. Well, Maharaj sent me an email from a godbrother who had, um, I guess on Gaur Purnima, went, uh, entered the, uh, the, the room where he was, uh, he had taken shelter of Narayan Maharaj after uh, sometime during the 90s. And uh, took, it was given sannyas by Narayan Maharaj, kind of by surprise. He, he entered the, the room and, and uh, Premananda Prabhu walked up to him, took him by the hand and sat him down and next to a pile of saffron cloth and a, and a newly wrapped danda. This is the way the email presented it, you know, it's like he walked into the room and found out he was going to, I mean, there must have been some discussions beforehand. And so I just thought, oh my God. And and the delight with which Maharaj sent me that that email had me wondering, oh my God, you know, am I, you know, is the bridge going to be burned? By, you know, am I going to wake up one morning, show up at Mangalarti, and have that bridge burned, you know, by surprise? You know. And so I ended up going back home for a, uh, a few months, and uh, and whatever year, oh, two must have been two thousand eleven. I went back for a few months after Gorpurnima. We came back up to California for Gorpurnima at Ajarya. Uh, and, uh, and I went back to Florida until Janmashtami. So it was, you know, five or six months. Um, but that was it. And um, so I spent some time at Ajarya. And I, I would go back back and forth at first between Ajarya and, and Madhuban. Um, which was, you know, really nice. I like the atmosphere in both places. I like the devotees in both places. I do remember that first visit to Madhavan. It was just it's you, so Mayapur, and me. And it was during the rainy season. And every morning, as soon as Mangalarti was over, before, just as the sun was starting to come up, you and Mayapur would load up, hike down, <clears throat> hike down to the um, inlet to see what the heck you had to fix today. And, uh, you know, again, I was the cook and, and Pujari so that you and Mayapur could, could do the hard stuff. And then, and then Gore, uh, and Mayapur went to Poland for a couple, three weeks. Uh, and that was when Gorsundar came. Yep. It was Gorsundar who has been there ever since. Yeah. Yeah. 15, 15 years. Yeah. Those were the, toughest four months of my life <laughs> i don't think i'm gonna overdo that but yeah um were you there when we had that mudslide and the whole oh, i was okay yeah. i actually that was that happened it happened just after mayapur no it happened just just before, before gorsundar yeah. left in mayapur and i remember you, Gorsundar, and I, on, on Saturday morning after that rain, and the rain was really something. The path to the temple was like this rushing stream. It was just, God, it was so crazy. And, and we were thinking, okay, after all that, we got to get it, you know, we need, we have some errands we need to do in, in, in Nicoya. And, you know, we were thinking, first thing we were thinking was the internet cafe just so that we could just be in touch with the rest of the world all of a sudden, just a little bit. And we're driving down the road and there's this wall. It must've been six and a half or seven feet tall. And what was it? Maybe 35 feet 
wide across the whole hill had just slid across the road and i remember of course and I'll, I'll i'll clean it up a little bit as we're we saw that wall of mud and gorsinder said we are so screwed <laughs> but a, a little more r-rated it was like oh my god so we drove back up put our grubby clothes back on again grabbed some shovels and, and started shoveling and we shoveled i think for a couple of days until juan got a day off work and came up on his horse to see how we were and he i remember him riding up over the mound um that that uh, mound and and uh and he asked about the wires and and everything you know and and he went back and he took care of uh, having the guy come in with a bulldozer and clear i mean it would have taken us a couple of weeks i think to clear that by hand yeah i remember the first day we dug just a real a little uh clarification for the listeners what happened was there was so such intense rains that the whole bank from behind one of the there's this like slope and the water the rain brought down this whole bank of like huge boulders like whole trees with their roots and everything just like slid it yep. down from the bank to the driveway or the road that was our our only access road to get out of Marovan. and so we <laughs> we tried digging ourselves out but i remember we dug like eight hours straight and it was extremely hard work because the mud was so heavy from the rain that and like, very clay and very clayey and clingy right too like it would yeah so it stuck to the shovels yeah and the shoes our shoes had these like six inch cakes at the bottom and so we did it for like eight hours straight and we got about four feet ahead out of the 35 feet or 40 feet whatever the whole length was i mean it was just insane absolutely insane but yeah that's that's pioneering for you i guess <laughs> <laughs> i guess uh, going back to um Sanya. So then you took Sanya's in 2012. And I guess what I'm really interested in, so there's, I, I think I'm going to end with this because I, I could go on for another hour, but you know, we try to keep this roughly in like hour, 15 minutes. So uh, I'll uh, end with this, but what I'm really interested in is nowadays, there's kind of a lot of talk in certain circles in the uh, international Gaudia circles about how sannyas is not relevant anymore. So uh, I'd like to hear from you, you know, from the horse's mouth, like what is the relevance of sannyas right now, like in this day and age, like say like Bhaktivinod, he was actually emphasizing that people should just stay as householders in the Kali Yuga, but then Bhaktisiddhanta and Srila Prabhupada had this very strong push for sannyas. And it seems like now there's some like blowback against that in a lot of ways. But so I'd love to hear from you, like, what do you think is the relevance of sannyas in the, the uh, international Gaudiya circles? Um, I think that um, the relevance of the sannyas ashram nowadays is that there are um, people um, who are kind of like emblems of complete dedication um, to um, well, to sadhana and and um, and and outreach in different ways, and um, that I, that was how Srila Prabhupada um, saw it. I think when he started giving devotees sannyas, he wanted people who would you know kind of step up, do uh, you know maybe do um, outlandish things, although. The first devotees he sent actually abroad 
um, was you know three householder couples to uh, uh, to England in in '68. So um, and here to Hawaii, he sent a householder here as well. Um, <clears throat> but um, he, he, you know, someone who would be an kind of um, be a signpost for that dedication. I mean, the essence of sannyas, a couple of things that Prabhupada says. One, he said, the essence of sannyas is, is uh, teaching bhakti yoga, teaching Krishna consciousness. Um, but he's also made it really clear when he talked about the tree dundi sannyas, and that is that the actual symptoms of sannyas are dedication of kaya, mana, and bhak to uh, kaya, mana, and bhakya to uh, to the service of Mukunda, as we see in that um, verse from the Etan Saastaya Paratmanishtam verse from the Avanti Brahmana. Srila Prabhupada had his, when he gave sannyas uh, on a couple of occasions that I was aware of, um, that I've either exp personally experienced or seen transcripts of, uh, of the sessions, he had them chant that verse three times, had him chant the Sanskrit verse three times read the translation, and then his Chaitanya Charitamrita Madhya chapter three purport. Uh, and this was you know, starting year, uh, you know, maybe three, four, three years or so before Chaitanya Charitamrita was published. Um, I remember him, uh, he had Sudama read that in 1972 when he gave him sannyas in Tokyo. Um, so, that dedication of, of our bodies, our minds, and our speech, um, which are symbolized by the three rods tied together with the fourth rod, which symbolizes the dedication of our very selves, the jiva, um, to the service of Mukunda, um, who is Lord Krishna. So um, the sannyasis kind of serve as, you know, as emblems. Um, of that complete dedication, which is why I guess they're afforded the deference um, they are. Uh, and it's people who are free. This is one of the things I saw when my friend Siddhasrupananda took sannyas here in Hawaii in 1972. I remember noticing him at Mangalarti that just, you know, the few, uh, you know, just the mornings right after he took sannyas and in the kirtan, he all of a sudden he just looked even freer than he was before. So we give up our one of the things that we accept on sannyas. We accept a kopan, we accept a danda, we accept achuta gotra. We accept that we don't have any family other than Krishna's. Um, you know, we're a hundred percent part of uh, of Krishna's family. So that means we don't belong to the, the small narrow family that we might be accustomed to, to uh, identifying with so that we can belong um, to everybody. Um, so the sannyasis are, are free to, do, to, to go where they're needed and, and do what's necessary. And, and we may not all be uh, you know, like hard charging, uh, you know, extroverted um, kind of folks. I know that in a lot of ways I'm not exactly standard issue sannyasi, I guess. Um, only a couple of us who had long, happy, successful Krishna conscious marriages um, and went on to take sannyas. And um, for me, 
what I what I began to see as I was being drawn out of my family life was that although there wasn't anything wrong with my spiritual life at that point, uh, perhaps I was a little more comfortable than was necessary. Uh, we had a very strong sadhana program. We did a lot of, uh, we associated a lot with the local devotees. They were all our friends and neighbors. And uh, we did programs together at least every week. And, um, and you know, we felt like we were making some progress in our spiritual life, um, uh, slow as it may be. Um, and uh, we really supported each other in that, in that growth. But maybe I was just a little too comfortable with my little house out in the country on the big island. And um, so I got pulled, I got pulled out of my um, comfort zone. So I think, you know, that, um, you know, that to the extent that there's some relevance that, that, uh, that devotee, that sannyasis can be, uh, can be useful like that. I also think, you know, I mean, of course, maybe it's just me, but um, one of the things people seem to appreciate about me is my accessibility and um, uh, well, my accessibility, I guess, in a number of ways. Um, I, I have a really hard time um, what sometimes feels to me like putting on airs, you know, trying to act uh, so completely aloof from, um, from everything and everyone that, um, you know, that, uh, you know, that they can't, uh, people can't relate to me. You know, I'm easy. It turns out once you get past my shyness, I'm I'm easy to talk to. I can I'm I'm often a, a pretty good listener, um, and uh, I, I like hearing other uh, devotees. Uh, I like hearing other devotees' stories as well. Um, so you know, I mean, sannyasis. You know, we need. Uh, you know, we there's a certain decorum that we need to observe, um, but I think it's really good um, that we can be actual genuine human beings to this, to the extent that it's possible for each of us has a completely different character, completely different personality. Um, so we're going to have a great variety, even among sannyasis. So even though we have this decorum, I think it's really um, good that we you know that we we also um, find ourselves comfortable with other people. And and be, you know, letting other people share themselves with us, share, and sharing ourselves with them. When we see that admonition from Lord Chaitanya, we also need to consider the context. All of the scripture that he's citing says, "No, you know that in Kali Yuga people shouldn't eat cows and 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 shouldn't take sannyas." The context is that. Lord Chaitanya was castigating the Kazi uh, for being a mediator and, and imposing some sort of religious stricture on, you know, some so-called, so you know, religious stricture on, on the Sankirtan movement. Um, and the, you know, the point that he was making was, you know, how can you talk about religion when, you know, when you regularly eat cows? You know, he wasn't, you know, he, he gave that admonition, he used that verse as part of his admonition of the, the Kazi, castigating the Kazi. Um, and, and then he went and took sannyas a couple of years later. 
So I don't know. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. I like that. So there's a couple of questions, uh, at least one question from Shraddha. Um, Shraddha, do you hmm. want to read your question or do you want to ask it yourself? I guess your internet's been a little weak, so it might have a problem. If you want to, want to ask it yourself, we can try that out. Hare Krishna. Um, I don't know if you can just a general kind of question, just drawn to certain leaders um, or certain pastimes or certain moods um, within Galileo, within Shinalila, whatever. I'm just wondering what you, what you drawn to whether in the early days or now uh, I, and why right i think it's it's too hard to that. yeah i i didn't hear enough of that to uh, understand what, we, what the questions were i have the question here okay here okay so i have the question here she sent it to me Okay, so Shraddha asks, I would like to know if uh, if you have a specific empathy or attraction for a certain Lila within either Gora or Krishna Lila that you feel drawn to or have done, have felt that drawing in the past and why? Sometimes devotees have an affinity for a certain Lila or mood within a certain Lila and it would be interesting to hear this from you. Sounds like a personal question. Um, well, I, I find myself, I, ha, I have long found myself particularly drawn to, well, one particular Leela that I really, I like the Damodar, I like Krishna's Damodar Leela, but I also really like um, a lot about the, the Govardhan Leela. It's such, it's such a, a wonderful Leela with so many um, lessons and, and, and a lot of um, fun, I think, in it as well. Um, I like, in the 10th canto, I, I like the chapter on the Aghasura Leela, chapter 12, because it opens up with this picture, this really wonderful kind of almost cinematic picture Sukadev Goswami explaining to King Parikshit uh, how Krishna and the cowherd boys would hang around and just they're just messing around in the forest while the cows are grazing. Maybe it's the calves at this point still. And um, you know all all that you know country bumpkin kid stuff that they were doing out in the forest, you know, chasing birds' shadows on the on the ground and. Um, harassing the monk climbing trees and harassing the monkeys and shouting bad words down wells and cracking up when the echo would come back and, and all that kind of stuff. And then Shukadev says, as if in astonishment, what kind of punya, what kind of pious activities could possibly account for these country kids to have the absolute truth 
whom the Gyanis see as, the, as Brahman, and nobody else can really understand, they're just gonna see him as an ordinary person, as their personal friend, just as Lord Brahma is amazed um, later, ahobhagyam, ahobhagyam. This is one of my favorite verses, itang satam brahma sukhana bhutya. Um, and, uh, and, then he, and then he shifts into the uh, Aghasura Leela after that. So I, I like the Aghasura Leela partly because of that. Also, I like the cowherd boys just like shrugging the shoulders and say, well, giant, giant python, cave, whatever, let's check it out. If something goes south, Krishna will help us out. He always does. So they just kind of like march in. And I always love that one Atma Samarpana song that um, Tripararmash Ki Jai. Um, that uh, that Bhaktivinoda Thakur wrote in his Sharanagati. And, and that a couple of lines have this picture of the cowherd boys confidently marching into the mouth of, of Okasura. And, and, and I always just like the picture that paints. Um, whenever Agni would sing that song, I would just get, it would make me happy. Um, yeah, what, what's my favorite Leela? What, what's my favorite Leela in Gora Leela? It actually became taking sannyas because I remember when, especially that first time I went to Audarya, as I was cooking lunch, I would be listening to, what's that devotee's name who has the audio of, of Chaitanya Bhagavat? Damodar. I would hear that over and over again. And then I would get to the part where the Ashirvad comes. Anyone who hears this Leela with attention, you know, will have all their attachment to, to family life destroyed. And, you know, I'd get to that part and I would think, well, that's supposed to be why I'm listening to it. <laughs> but it's hard to hear that every time I, you know, every time I get to the end of that, that Leela. But it's such a, um, you know, it's such a, a, a rich Leela, like Krishna leaving Vrindavan with the Kurura. So many, so like such a mix of emotions among the devotees. Thank you. Gormash is saying Jai in the background. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a bunch of questions from um, Gokul Chandra, and I kind of integrated some of them to the actual interview. But I wanted to one uh, one question I wanted to pull out from here, and it is. Um, what in your experience are the most important qualities we should try to develop as practitioners of Krishna Bhakti? Um, in uh, his Upadeshamrita, Rupa Goswami mentions six qualities that are particularly helpful for the culture of Bhakti. And I like to point out the first three, especially enthusiasm, determination or steadiness, and patience. Um, because we see, you know, devotees, uh, we see that enthusiasm um, a, a lot of times. And it comes out, you know, it turns, turns out sometimes to be utsahamayi, this kind of like unwarranted, um, confident enthusiasm. And... Uh, where, you know, we're, we, we, we think that, you know, we, we've actually gone a long way, but maybe not as far as we might think we have, because, you know, all of a sudden we realize it's Friday night and I'm not at a club or something like that. I'm, you know, I'm sitting with devotees, uh, you know, hearing Srimad Bhagavatam or Chaitanya Charitamrita 
I must be a pure, we used to call it the pure devotee syndrome. Um, but enough enthusiasm that, uh, that, we, that we push even when it's hard and determination, um, but also uh, some, we need patience um, because um, as Kiparari uh, Maharaj has pointed out so many times, not all the flowers in the garden, fortunately, not all the flowers in the garden bloom at the same time. And um, each of us is you know, on our own uh, path. And uh, to the extent that we um, persist in our practice, um, each of us will grow at a particular rate. Um, and sometimes that get, gets kicked into overdrive by, good, by fortunate circumstances, good association or maybe apparently unfortunate circumstances like <clears throat> my losing my position at the university or Srila Prabhupada's business failing or whatever, you know. Um, you know, we find ourselves in, in a situation where, um, where it gets you know, kicked into fifth gear. Um, and um, I guess we have sixth gear on some cars nowadays. But... Um, um, I, I like. I, I think um, really important things to keep in mind are enthusiasm, steadiness, and patience. If I had, I'm. I was never. I've never been um, a star. Um, I've suffered, maybe occasionally been um, a little prominent in very small circles, largely because of my longevity. But if I have any um, assets at all. It's that I've just never given up, you know, in going on 54 years, um, you know, even when things seem to be moving really slowly, you know, I still get up. I, you know, I, I, I still um, uh, take refuge in, in my japa and the association of devotees and Srimad Bhagavatam and Chaitanya Charitamrita. I just keep, keep doing it every day. And as the Taoists say, tiny drops of water wear away the stone. So something's happening to this stone that passes from my heart, and, uh, and that's by the grace of the of the devotees. Thank you. That's beautiful. Great way to end. I think basically uh, perseverance, right? Perseverance and sincerity. That's beautiful. I would. Say, I, I love. I think sincerity. Sincerity is. Well, Srila Sridhar Maharaj says, says that uh, sincerity is invincible. And I've seen that in some new devotees that I've been working with the last couple, three years. In one devotee, this really fierce, fierce sincerity to become Krishna conscious no matter what. Um, that's really important. Um, and being open to receiving grace, being open to accepting um, affection from devotees, uh, um, devotees worthy of our taking their shelter and uh, and as well uh, of devotees who find our shelter helpful you know who finds you know, who see something in us that's a lesson that i've been learning especially as a sannyasi just to somehow or other to gracefully accept the devotees ex expressions of uh, affection and respect so that they don't feel uncomfortable around me Thank you so much, Marge. This was a fantastic, fantastic chat. Oh, I, uh, thank you. My, my favorite, my second favorite subject. <laughs>
What's their favorite subject? Surfing? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, no, my favorite subject, actually, I think my favorite subject is now Lord Chaitanya and Lord Krishna, Krishna and Balaram. But my, I, I, you know, at least my second favorite subject is me. <laughs> well, well, not me so much as as the journey that Srila Prabhupada and the devotees have brought me on for the last right, 50 right, odd years. Yeah, so we should probably, I think we should have another another chat uh again because there's so much to go through like i had a bunch oh, of dear. I never came okay but this is uh, i really love that format it, i don't know i i mean this format i really enjoy doing these interviews so I, I would like to have you come come on again at some point and uh i guess with that uh we'll let you go to your duties i have i had to meet also merely dar for some painting job so oh nice meet again soon hopefully thanks so much okay Mark. thank you thank you Hare krishna Evil.